0: Not so many years ago, Swiss banks came under fire for their secrecy and for the help they gave to the world's kleptocrats who liked to stash their ill-gotten gains in Geneva and Zurich. Eventually, the Swiss banks were told to get their houses in order, which inconvenienced those who wanted to hide their assets. As the former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto once muttered in my hearing: what's the point of a Swiss bank account if it's not secret? Today, London is considered the money laundering capital of the world, where the world's most corrupt individuals can park their assets safely. So how bad is that problem? Where else does it happen? What can be done about it? And to discuss all of that, I'm joined by a journalist who's made this subject his own. He started looking at these issues in Russia, but it's gone global. Uh, Oliver Bulow, welcome. Um, Thanks very much for having me on the show. And uh, let's first of all, just work out where this money is coming from. So I've got a number of places, I'll just put them to you. And you could perhaps tell us what happens in those places and what sort of funds are heading to London and elsewhere. So first of all, China.
1: Yes, China obviously is huge. Capital flight from China is immeasurable, colossal quantities, definitely nine figure sum in the last you know decade or two. China is the really big one in terms of the volume of money. Um, and I think maybe we could get into the sort of specifics of China because it is fascinating and different to our sort of second big one, uh, which of course is, is Russia and more broadly, the former Soviet Union, uh, the other republics that used to be part of the Soviet empire, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, of course, and, and various other smaller ones. A lot of money comes from the Gulf, it's slightly complicated because since they kind of own their own countries, it's not really clear that it, what they're doing is illegal. And then, of course, there's the, there's the perpetual problems in, in Africa. A lot of money comes from particularly the former British colonies in Africa, Nigeria in particular, will come to London. There's, there's a sort of separate problem in uh, Latin America, of course, but most of that money as a rule tends to go to the United States rather to, to the UK. So it's not really a big issue with uh, the UK, but it is a, a a big problem for money laundering and kleptocracy more broadly.
0: So why don't you start with that distinction between China and the former Soviet countries? What 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 is the distinction there?
1: Well, it's a really interesting one, because, you know, looked at sort of from the very, very distance, you could see that that there, in a way, isn't that much difference between China and Russia, both of them are very unequal societies, both in terms of power and wealth. both of them used to be very strict communist societies and both of them have become you know less communist in their sort of economic makeup but have remained you know very autocratic politically but the the way that they integrated to you know the globalized economy the american led political system happened very differently um, America the people in charge of policy in the early 1990s, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, made a a conscious decision to try and integrate into the Western political system as thoroughly and as quickly as they could. They had this idea that by very quickly transforming the economy, they would create private property. Private property would then create pressure for honest Courts so that the people who own private property could protect their private property, and that those honest courts would then lead to democracy. That obviously didn't happen. Uh, instead of, you know, protecting private property at home, the people who stole uh, big Russian companies just exported their money to London uh, and other big Western economies. So uh, Russia ended up like a kleptocracy, but it did end up very integrated to Western economies. So laundering money out of Russia. It's surprisingly simple for an, an oligarch. Um, it, it's just a question of disguising your ownership via a useful shell company. Often UK shell companies are favoured because they're cheap and, and very effective. And then through a number of banks in Cyprus, previously in the Baltic States, possibly in Dubai, you know, move it through a few banks, uh, confuse everyone. And then it ends up in London where you could spend it on property, certainly until February this year. So that's kind of how Russia works. But China is fascinatingly different in that there are very strict controls out of how much money you can move out of China, about 50,000 US dollars every year. And obviously for a wealthy Chinese person wanting to buy property in Vancouver or Los Angeles or London or wherever, $50,000 isn't going to get you very far. It's not even going to buy you a luxury car, let alone a luxury property. So they have created a extraordinarily elaborate and com- and complicated money laundering system which works in the same way that the Hawala system that we used to hear a lot about after 9-11 and I'm sure you've you've come across in Pakistan and Afghanistan whereby there was a shadow financial system and you would give cash to a shadow banker in Kabul and then would just be able to receive cash in Dubai. It wouldn't be the same money, but the the two Hawala operators would be part of the same network and they trusted each other. So eventually they would sort it out between themselves and you would be able to take the cash. Essentially, the Chinese have created a system of that nature, just far, far, far larger and far more elaborate, which now operates all over the world. So, you know, wealthy Chinese people, people with legitimate money in China, but who are unable to get it out of China, who wish to receive money in the UK or in the United States or Canada, Australia, Spain, wherever, essentially have now moved into business with particularly big drug cartels, big drug gangs, and they will receive uh, drug money, drug cash in big Western economies, which is a kind of a weird reverse form of money laundering. Uh, Money that started out as clean in China is essentially replaced with dirty money in uh, Western economies. So although, um, I mean, I could go on and on about this, it's absolutely fascinating the way it's worked. And it's interesting how little attention it's received, um, considering how vast it is as a problem. But essentially, the uh, Chinese money laundering gangs have now created a an entire parallel, uh, parallel financial system, which provides very cheap uh, money laundering services to big drug cartels and other organised criminal groups simply because there is so much demand from wealthy chinese people to obtain money outside of china and so so i mean it's a, it it's it's almost how how banking used to operate in the middle ages the way lombard bankers used to operate in the middle ages it's it's fascinating and huge
0: yeah i did use that system in um uh, Afghanistan, in fact, it was utterly extraordinary. I mean, you could, you could, um, someone in London could go to the east end of London, put a thousand pounds to a man in a grocery store there, and within half an hour, uh, a fax was sent. Within half an hour, I could be given a thousand pounds in Kabul.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's it's even quicker now because you don't have to use a fax anymore. You can just send a message with WeChat or or or, or another form of instant messaging, and and it's almost instantaneous and the the sums of money transformed are colossal
0: but i'm i'm wondering about that if 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 there are huge colossal sums of money i mean how useful is that to a chinese person in london so let's say they've got i don't know half a million quid which has just come from some drugs operation in the uk they've got it in cash in london now i mean using cash on that scale in london is not easy right
1: this is true, but there are a number of different ways around it. And the, the, I mean, en- the gangs are endlessly probing for weaknesses in the uh, global financial architecture to spot uh, opportunities. One opportunity which was open until very recently was that it was possible to enter cash at a, a cash machine or a special machine in a bank. You could just put cash in and enter it into a bank account, the weakness being that it didn't have to be your bank account. So often students, Chinese students, would be recruited given large amounts of money and would just sit there all day feeding cash into uh, banks in, in a number of different uh, banks who operated these kind of automatic paying in machines. Uh, that was stopped a couple of years ago, but it's been replicated in all over the world, that same weakness. A separate one is by using casinos. You can take cash to a casino, exchange it for chips, play for a, you know, a couple of rounds of roulette and then cash out and your money is clean. It's a a very old method of laundering money, but it's still operational. Another one is to export your money to somewhere like Dubai, someone that doesn't ask very many questions, paid into a bank there. So, you know, there are always weaknesses in the financial system, which will manage to uh, launder astonishing amounts of money. Uh, And I mean, the interesting question, of course, is how do you balance the books between the criminal gangs in China and in the uk or the us or mexico or australia or wherever who are who are you know moving the the value back and forth and the same question of course was was posed to hawala operators uh, in afghanistan or or pakistan as still is to this day you know how do you balance the books between a hawala dar in Kabul and a hawala dar in dubai and the answer is that you don't move money at all you move goods you move uh drugs counterfeit goods or actual real goods often drugs will be shipped from china to the uk and the return transaction the the, the value that goes in the opposite direction will be in the form of, of designer goods which you can buy in this country significantly cheaper than you could buy them in in china so there is a a huge money laundering operation which doesn't really involve money it involves moving goods and that makes it incredibly hard to spot you know we have very very sophisticated systems now to pick up on suspicious movements of electronic money through our financial system. And yet probably 80% of, of the money laundering, if not more, that happens is not moved via the banking system at all. It's moved through the movement of goods, commodities, gold, oil, grain, anything at all from one part of the world to another. And that is how the value is is laundered from one side to another. So essentially, I mean, we've dived right into the depths of this astonishingly complicated system. But what we have is uh, an entire parallel criminal financial system that we are only beginning to grasp the significance and the size of. It has grown up alongside the globalised financial system and is essentially the oxygen system for all criminality in the entire world. It 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 maintains drug trafficking, people trafficking, uh, wildlife trafficking, pretty much anything you name, including kleptocracy and fraud, which are huge and growing problems all over the world. So this is what I spend my days trying to understand. And it feels a little bit, you know, I began... Looking to this when I lived in Russia and Ukraine, it feels a little bit like I you know opened the door into a labyrinth, and then I thought I'd explored that labyrinth, opened another door, and there was a far bigger labyrinth and Having explored that door, I finally found another door, and there was an even bigger labyrinth. It is a colossal challenge to try and get your head around this, and one of the most bewildering aspects of it is that in politics and uh, law enforcement, particularly in politics, no one or very few people really care um so i feel a little bit like i'm i'm you know occasionally i feel as if i'm being rather perverse in trying to make people care about something that no one else appears to care about at all as one a child asked me once when i was doing a t- talk at a school about money laundering having listened to me rather suspiciously for an hour and looked at me beneath lowered eyebrows he put his hand up at the end and said yeah mr if you know all this about money laundering why don't you just go and do it and sometimes <laughs> i do wonder what the answer to that question so tell me tell me about
0: the Gulf. Just going through the list you had at the beginning, you've given us a little bit on Russia and China.
1: So, so, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, the Gulf is another part of the world. Not all the Gulf is the same, but talking about it more broadly, it is also a place with with very stark inequality with a small number of incredibly rich people and a very large number of not rich people. uh, a, A situation heightened in many Gulf states by the fact that the poor people are not even citizens of the countries that they live and work in. And that is a slightly complicated situation compared to China or Russia in that the people who own the countries can set the rules and kind of do what they like. So it isn't really clear that what they're doing is illegal at all. If you own the country and you take a load of money and ship it to, you know, Switzerland or, London to buy whatever you like um you know is that legal or is that illegal it, it It's very hard, however, particularly in the uh, United Arab Emirates, particularly in dubai the the local authorities have created a new form of uh, tax haven secrecy haven to help other people launder money um as some Western countries have made it more difficult to launder money made it you know checks a bit more intrusive. Dubai has stepped in as a replacement so You know, an interesting phenomenon in uh, the Gulf is the development of Dubai as kind of the first non-democratic tax haven. In the past, uh, the really big tax havens and wealth havens have always been uh, Western countries, democratic countries, whether that's uh, Nevada or London or Switzerland or wherever. Dubai is an interesting development in that it obviously isn't democracy. And yet it is um, a place of growing significance as a wealth haven, also as a place for... Things like blood diamonds or blood gold, all of the commodities that used to be um, sold through Antwerp or Switzerland uh, until, you know, the international treaties really cracked down on the movement of, of, you know, illicit commodities. All those things tend to go via Dubai now.
0: But why would a Dubai sheikh move money to London if it probably is better off keeping it
1: where it is? Well, I mean, they're really rich. So, you know, they wouldn't be moving all their money to, to, to London. But London's a nice place. You know, it it you know often I think British people can often be a bit baffled about why, you know, why on earth do rich people so insistent to put their money in London? You know, what is it about London? You know, I think we have this idea that, you know, London is a sort of rainy, grimy, rather unfriendly place and who wants to put their money here? London's great, great um, if you're rich. It's got everything you need. It's got, you know, fabulous real estate, you know, great schools, great universities, great museums, great restaurants. It's got a very convenient time zone. Um, it's got law enforcement agencies that are going to leave you in peace um if 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 you've stolen money and will protect you fiercely if someone tries to steal your money, you know it's a very convenient, comfortable place to be. Uh, you know these people who are very wealthy they will have a you know a portfolio of properties. so they'll have a place at home, obviously, they'll have a place in London, they'll probably have a place in the south of France. they might have a you know a nice yacht which will you know uh, move between the Caribbean and the Mediterranean they'll have, probably have a place in St. Bart's and, and so on and so forth, maybe a couple of places in the US. So, you know, London is one of the leading international cities for the super rich, for the, for the kleptocrats and just the very wealthy people in general. You know, it is, you know, along with New, New York, Miami, you know, the South of France, the Gulf, it's one of the places where you have a property. So that's why you have a property here, you know, because it's wherever everyone it wants to be. You know, success breeds success.
0: And when you talked about Africa, is there anything distinctive about African kleptocracy?
1: I mean, Africa is one of the sort of, what I suppose you might call poster boys of kleptocracy. Kleptocracy as a term is quite an old word. It dates back to the early 19th century, um, certainly when it was first written down. But its modern form, this sort of egregious globalised corruption, was created by an anthropologist. Uh, called a uh, sociologist called Stanislav, Stanislav Andreski, a Polish academic based at the University of Reading in the UK. He first coined it in reference to Latin America, but he developed it as an idea in reference to sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly Nigeria after independence. So for a lot of academics, you know, kleptocracy means Africa. What happened with sort of, Sania Abacha in Uh, Nigeria, what happened with the Dos Santos family in Angola, what's happened with other politicians, um, particularly in Equatorial Guinea, that these are the definitive examples of kleptocracy, the transformation of a country from, you know, uh, a a place with the government to just a, you know, a a patch of territory with a predatory mafia gang ruling them, you know. and, And so what's distinctive in much of Sub-Saharan Africa is just the extremity of kleptocracy in many of these places. You know, I'm a Russianist, so I tend to focus on Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, places like that, Azerbaijan, as examples of kleptocracy. And, you know, and there are strong similarities between what you see in the former Soviet Union and what you see in Sub-Saharan Africa. I suppose a big difference is that it's it's been going on longer in Sub-Saharan Africa because that really became Embedded in the in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, but no. In, in essence, the the way the money is laundered, the jurisdictions the money is laundered through, the places where the money ends up, above all the U.S. and the U.K., it, it's the same. So I think it's pretty easy to, or, or certainly understandable, to generalize but about the two the two places, the former Soviet Union and, and Sub-Saharan Africa, is, as as saying that kleptocracy works in the same way in both. Although there are you know specific aspects. Based on imperial history, uh, for example, you know the Angolan kleptocrats would often keep their money in Lisbon because of the l- historical connections between Portugal and Angola. Uh, often, the, the Francophone colonies of uh, West Africa have very strong connections to Paris. Mm-hmm. Equatorial Guinea, though a Spanish-speaking former Spanish colony, has very, also very strong relationship to Paris, that also has strong relationships to the United States. So it's not, you know, absolutely the same everywhere. But the general picture is, is there's enough similarities to say that when we're talking about kleptocracy, we're kind of always talking about the same thing.
0: And just to sort of give them a mention, but probably much the same could be said of Pakistan, India, they with their colonial history tend to look to London, and it's the same story there.
1: Absolutely, there's been, you know, those, those connections. And you know this is I mean, perhaps it's something we can get onto um this isn't accidental the the connections that were left behind at independence of british colonies um are the same connections that moved wealth from uh the colony to london before independence and then they continue to move wealth, move wealth after independence you know if we think about what a what a colony was you know in in the in the sort of purest sense a colony is just a way of extracting wealth from somewhere for the benefit of the metropolis so extracting wealth from india um from malaysia from nigeria from egypt extracting wealth from there for the benefit of london i mean obviously there were other things mixed in with that but you know strategic interests and so on but that's the you know the purest definition of it so it's not surprising really that you know after independence those networks were pressed into service to loot the countries on behalf of the new rulers, just as they had looted the countries on behalf of the old rulers. You know, I suppose the only only difference really was the fact that people tend to hide it a bit more because, you know, the freedom fighters who had uh, obtained uh, independence from the British, you know, were, if not a little bit ashamed, they were certainly aware that other people might judge them harshly for the fact that they had so quickly turn to the methods that were previously used by the imperialists. So the wealth that was taken out of Nigeria and ended up in London when it was taken by the British was done directly because that was just how imperial rule worked. When it was done by Sani Abacha and other rulers of post-independence Nigeria, it tended to be routed via you know, the British Virgin Islands and other colonies to try and disguise what was happening. OK, and so if we take all that together,
0: looking at everything you've said about these different places, there seem to be two types of money. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. There's, there's money that is actually legally earned, like in the Gulf, you know, it, as you said, not breaking any laws. And maybe also some of the businesses in Russia and China are making money legitimately but they can't get the money out and they want to get it out so they've got access to it outside the country and it's not subject to nationalisation or sort of the sort of things those governments might do to it. And then there's criminal money. So there are two, is that right? Two different types?
1: Yes. Now, can I, I've been quite nerdy so far. Can I go really deep into nerdiness now? <laughs> it's a splendid idea. Um, so what you're saying is that, that you're right, that there is, in this sort of money laundering world, the the movement of, uh, shadow finance through the global financial system. You're right, we have money that just doesn't want scrutiny, but which is not itself illegal money. And then you have money which is illegal, which is being moved um, in order to, to wash it clean of any taint so it can be reinvested on behalf of criminals. This has always been the case. At the heart of the offshore world, from its very beginning uh, in the post-war financial system, back from the 1950s, onwards and really, really taking off into the 1960s and 70s, there was always this wedding between this marriage between what in my book Moneyland I call naughty money and what I call evil money. The two were always entwined together. And this is one of the reasons why the offshore system has been so incredibly resilient and so hard to do anything about. So, I mean, you mentioned Switzerland at the beginning of Benazir Bhutto being a little bit miffed about the fact that a Swiss bank isn't what it used to be. In the early 1960s, when clever British bankers were working out ways to create sort of mobile, uh, anonymous wealth for anyone who wanted it, the first customers that they had included what we would now call kleptocrats. Um, the banker at the time referred to them as your usual fallen South American dictators, people who had looted the the treasury in Argentina or Bolivia or wherever and ended up, you know, in, in, in rather forlorn retirement um, on the Costa del, you know, on the, on the Riviera rather. But there were also what they referred to as Belgian dentists. Belgian dentists was their term for wealthy Europeans who stashed their money in Switzerland to evade taxes. So, you know, that money, the Swiss money wasn't illegal money. It was just money that, that hadn't paid taxes. So, that then continued all the way through into um, kleptocracy as it spread through uh, sub-Saharan Africa. You had British people who lived in the ex-colonies who didn't want to pay taxes to the, either to the new post-colonial government or to the British government, so they would put their money in somewhere like Jersey to evade having to pay any taxes. But then you also had the new rulers of these colonies who had stolen a lot of money and they didn't want to be scrutinised, so they would move money the same way that um, you know the remaining British people left in the colonies did, and then you see that now with uh, Russians, for example, there are plenty of Russian business people who do not feel that they are part of the Kremlin machine at all. Uh, they are appalled by the idea that they have any influence over Putin or that they are in any way responsible for what Putin has done. And I mean that may or may not be true, but they have got their money out of Russia, not because they wish to undermine elections in the United States, but simply because they don't want their money to be confiscated by the Kremlin. And they spend it in the West because they want to keep it safe. Now, that money is not illegal money. They may well have earned it completely legally. And and their reasons for getting out of Russia are totally understandable. However, they are moving it through exactly the same channels that are used by the FSB or the GRU or other russian uh, security services or by you know putin's closest cronies who are determined to uh, fund mercenary groups in the central african republic or in or in mozambique or, or in um uh madagascar or wherever so the networks that are used by the evil people the real baddies the drug cartels you know the kleptocrats the the russian security services and so on are exactly the same systems that are used by wealthy Westerners, wealthy Russians, wealthy Chinese people with legitimate fortunes who are just trying to get their money out of the reach of of the tax authorities or whoever. And this actually goes one step further in the real supercharging of big, particularly Silicon Valley companies in the last 30 years, who have uh, made an art form of the kind of spectacular financial engineering we often talk about the genius of their engineering in terms of software and hardware but their financial engineering is every bit as spectacular and they've found clever ways of not paying any tax at all and ending up with huge sums of tax free revenues piling up in places like bermuda or jersey or ireland or wherever you know and essentially they too are another layer of naughty money which is running through the offshore system in you know in vast quantities there is far more naughty money than there is evil money but the reason why it's so hard to do anything about the evil money to cut off you know, the likes of Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenary group from the international financial system or cutting off the, the drug cartels in Latin America is that if we were to do that, we would also be cutting off the naughty money from the financial system. And that would inconvenience and annoy a very large number of extremely influential people in our societies who, though they are extremely enthusiastic about Western civilization, they're extremely unenthusiastic of having to pay to support it. You've started using the term offshore, and that sort of
0: goes on to this phrase offshore havens and British Virgin Islands, Gibraltar, all these places that are slightly outside the jurisdiction of normal uh, legal frameworks. Can you just talk us through that whole world of these small little places that serve the kleptocrats? What do they do for them? How does it work?
1: So offshore is a word that we normally associate with Places in the Caribbean, or occasionally micro states in Europe, places like Liechtenstein and so on. Actually, what offshore is is possibly Britain's most consequential contribution to history of the second half of the twentieth century. I think it's absolutely fascinating, and again, really understudied. In the nineteen fifties, when the city of London was really, you know, dying as a financial centre, it had been the financial centre for the British Empire, but as the British Empire. Sort of broke apart, and countries um, started, you know, having their own sovereignty and choosing to to move in different directions. No longer dominated by the UK anymore, the City of London was really losing business very hard. It was certainly particularly losing out in relation to Wall Street. It was easier, cheaper, uh, more efficient to uh, operate via Wall Street for international companies and for the newly independent companies, the countries than it was uh, to operate via the City of London, and the City of London was no longer an attractive option for graduates for young people in the uk to go and work in the city, and you know it was it was really falling apart it was it was definitely a thing of the past but just well during and after the Suez crisis, this process really came to a head when the British government in a desperate attempt to support the sterling Stirl- there was a, a sterling crisis then caused by international pressure on the pound when Britain was trying to re- regain control of the Suez Canal by invading Egypt, Britain banned the use of the pound as an international currency to finance trade. And and sterling had been. Even then, it was still an international currency, not as important as the dollar, but still definitely a strong second place. And the banks in London, what was left, desperately searching around for a way of staying in business, for a way of continuing to finance trade and to be able to operate a little bit. Uh, They seized on the idea of instead of using pounds to finance trade, they would use dollars. Uh, There were some dollars in London, mainly banked by the Soviet Union that was trying to evade American restrictions. And they borrowed those dollars from uh, Soviet banks and used them to finance trade. And in doing so, and this happened in 1955, and then particularly 1956, when the Suez Canal crisis happened, these banks made an astonishing discovery. In those days, there were really very tight restrictions on the use of money by Western governments. It's quite hard to get your head run now because you know, the, the, uh, Britain and America will allow anyone to use their money to do almost anything. But in those days, it, you know, there were very strict restrictions in the US on what interest rate you could charge, uh, on how much money you had to hold. There were very tight restrictions in the UK on how much money you could move around. It was very difficult to operate internationally. But what these banks realised is that if they used dollars in the United Kingdom, then there were no US restrictions because they weren't in US jurisdiction. And there were no UK restrictions because they weren't using pounds. So they discovered this amazing best of both worlds place where they gained the dynamism of the US dollar, but without the restrictions imposed by the US government. And they retained the openness of the British economy without the restrictions imposed on the use of sterling. This is the rebirth of the City of London happens at this point, the creation of this dollar market. They called it the euro dollar market because they were dollars being used in Europe. And they needed a term for these new markets they would created. Essentially, they had a, a legal space where there were no rules and restrictions. What do you call a legal space with no rules and restrictions? They already had that concept in international law. It's what happens if you get in a boat and you sail out to sea and you're out of reach of any country's jurisdiction. You call that offshore. What was happening out on the open seas was what was happening offshore, because you were no longer onshore, you were offshore. And so they adopted this term from maritime law as a term to describe this law-free, regulation-free space they'd created in the City of London. And having created that, having come up with this idea, they realised it was it's an astonishingly powerful and adaptable tool. Uh, regulations are expensive if you can offer financial institutions a place with no regulations, then it is inevitably cheaper for them to operate there and therefore more profitable. So banks piled into the City of London to take advantage of this. At first, uh, Japanese and American and other European banks, and then banks from all over the world, from from China, from from Russia, uh, and so on. And so this grew in the City of London. So although we think of offshore as being something uh, in the Caribbean, it's a British idea. It, It happened first in the UK. But then there were advantages to going even further offshore, to operating in the Caribbean, where there are even fewer rules than there are in Britain, or possibly just more biddable, uh, more flexible politicians who are prepared to pass laws that would allow you to do things you couldn't do in Britain. So that's where offshore comes from. But what's really important to understand is that it isn't a place. There is no place that is offshore. Offshore is always somewhere else. That is the point of it that it is a way of providing a legal space that allows you to evade the restrictions of another country. And although you may be operating in the city of London or operating in the British Virgin Islands or Cayman or Bermuda or Gibraltar or wherever, what is happening is not actually happening there. You are just providing a, a space for someone to be based who can arrange a, a, a tax dodging, a regulation dodging or a law dodging uh, transaction somewhere else.
0: Well, let's just take let's just take an example or two. Let's say Bermuda, Caymans, British Virgin Islands. Are those places used by the naughty dentist
1: or are they really only used by the kleptocrat? So most of them began as being used by the naughty dentist, though, in the cases that you mentioned, primarily in that case by American dentists rather than Belgian dentists. So Cayman, now one of the biggest centres, financial centres in the world, was born as a tax haven when Jamaica became independent. Previously, Cayman Islands were part of Jamaica, or ruled from Kingston. But when Jamaica became independent, they didn't really want the Cayman Islands. They were small and remote and had different characteristics, very small population, and were just kind of annoying. So they let Britain keep them, or, or they said to Britain, we don't really want this place. And Britain, in desperation, trying to make a look, trying to make a way for these islands to pay for themselves, started to use it as a way for Americans to dodge taxes. If you parked your money in Cayman, moved your money via Cayman, you could dodge what were at the time quite onerous taxes in the United States. Exactly the same thing explains the rise of the British Virgin Islands, uh, which provided essentially shell companies for initially Americans. The same is, is true of Jersey, Guernsey and the Channel Islands, except they were allowing mainly British people to dodge taxes imposed by Britain money that came back from other countries, instead of dumping it in Britain, you dump it in Jersey, and then you avoid having to pay taxes on it. So initially, the tax havens, almost all of them, began as a way to allow tax dodgers naughty money in the big Western economies to avoid scrutiny and taxes. But later, they realised that there was money and profits to be made in offering the same services to people from anywhere. So the British Virgin Islands began serving Americans, very quickly began to serve the drug cartels when they were kicked out of Panama after the downfall of General Noriega, and then Chinese people concerned about the return of Hong Kong to Chinese rule after that was announced in the 1980s. They all began to use BVI companies as well. Cayman was used on an industrial scale by the drug cartels to move cash out of places like Miami. Uh, They would fly cash into into Cayman, bank it and send it back again uh, in the form of electronic money as a way of laundering money. You know, Jersey was used by the KGB, um, and uh, the Soviet Central Bank and others to disguise wealth that they held in Europe, and the same is true of Switzerland. Switzerland, which began as a way of allowing French people to dodge taxes, grew to allow to provide scrutiny for kleptocrats from you know Nigeria, for the for Nazi war criminals, for anyone who wanted those services. So it tends to begin with the Belgian dentists, uh, American dentists, British dentists, uh, you name it, and then it extends to include kleptocrats afterwards but it's very unusual, possibly not entirely unheard of. But if it, if, if it has happened, I don't know where it is. It, it is certainly, I've, I can't think of an example where a tax haven has begun offering services to kleptocrats and only then offered services to tax dodgers later. Even if you look at Panama, possibly the most notorious of all the tax havens in terms of offering help for the drug cartels, that began offering uh, flags of convenience to American boats who wanted to be able to sell alcohol during Prohibition. Uh, so if American ships re-flagged as Panamanian, they were uh, alcohol was legal and they were able to offer it to American customers. So even there, you're looking at something that was definitely more at the naughty end of the spectrum rather than the evil end.
0: Right, well, let's just make the distinction then between, let's say, Panama, a sovereign nation, OK, operating as a huge money laundering outfit, racket, but nonetheless a sovereign country, versus Cayman... BVI, Jersey. Now, the legal arrangements in all those places, I imagine, are quite complex. Would, in all those three cases, the British government be in a position to stop this if it wanted to in those three places?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, just—I mean, you're, you're right, of course. Panama is a sovereign state, but sort of sovereign-ish um, as well. I mean, the, the American influence over Panama was enormous. I mean, it was hived off as a separate country, you know. Country in order to run the Panama Canal. So there was always a very strong US influence there. I mean, this isn't, we're not talking about, you know, Mongolia here. But you're right, of course, it is a separate country, and which it it partly, you know, explains why it was possible to put pressure on it. Um, The British ones, the British tax havens, are the most important ones and by far the most important in terms of the, the amount of money being moved. And Essentially, they have all come about in the same way, which is that when colonies became independent, they tended to become independent in the same way, which is that they were accorded ever greater autonomy in a sort of in, in a kind of pathway, which they all followed until eventually they became independent. And we can see now, um, you know, countries in the Caribbean finally becoming republics and abandoning the queen. That's you kind know, of the final stage is happening now. So it's been a, a very long process over many, many decades. Um, but a number of countries uh, in which the Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands are the most notorious, kind of got stuck on that pathway in that they began to obtain autonomy. They gained control over their own budget, control over their own law setting process, but were never actually independent and then just stopped at that stage, sort of half out the door. British enough to retain connections to the United Kingdom, British enough for people putting their money there to be confident that at the, at the end of the day, they could have recourse to the British courts but not sufficiently British that Britain felt able to, to pass laws for these places and tell them what to do. Now, Britain can pass laws in these places and tell them what to do. It, it does happen, but it's very controversial and it goes down very badly with local politicians. And they prefer really to avoid it, if at all possible. We've seen recently a scandal in the British Virgin Islands. The, the former Prime Minister, Andrew Fahi has been arrested in and is currently in, in jail in Miami awaiting trial for in a in a sort of money laundering drug trafficking scandal. And yet even so Britain has not imposed direct rule over the British Virgin Islands because it, you know, it is controversial and unpopular. So that the secret of these places is that they are sufficiently British for people to be confident to put their money there, but not so British that British police officers can operate there or British journalists can operate there very easily and so on and so forth. So that's how that works. So a similar process, in fact, worked with Dutch colonies in the Caribbean, particularly Curacao, which is just off the coast of of, um, South America, had a very similar dynamic and has also been an an important tax haven over the years. And also, uh, in in a strange way, we see a similar dynamic at work in the United Arab Emirates and also in the United States. It seems strange to draw a comparison, but in a way there is a comparison, which is that, The UAE is a federation. It is ruled from, you know, the capital of the UAE is Abu Dhabi. And Abu Dhabi does have influence over Dubai, but Dubai also has a significant amount of autonomy. So Dubai can sort of do what it likes. So if you're complaining about what Dubai does, you phone up Abu Dhabi, uh, the capital of the UAE and complain, and they say, well, we'll have a word, but we don't really have any control over them. And we see the similar thing now happening in the United States, whereby a number of states, notoriously South Dakota, but a number of others as well, have passed restrictions on scrutiny of finance coming into those states, which are way more advanced than anything you can now find in a tax haven in the Caribbean, particularly around trusts, which in South Dakota can last forever with no scrutiny at all. You know, something that no tax haven offers uh, in the same way. And that's, again, a very similar position that we see in the UAE, which is that if you complain about South Dakota as a foreign country, you would write to Washington and Washington would say, well, I'm sorry, that's a question for South Dakota. There's nothing we can do about that. So tax havens tend to be created by federations. If you see a situation where there is substantial local autonomy, as there is in the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, in Dubai, in South Dakota, Delaware, Nevada, and so on, then these countries will exploit that autonomy in order to set up tax havens, essentially to, to hide behind their own central government, but relying on the fact the central government can't do much for them. And we've seen, fascinatingly, and this is something I find really interesting, we've seen a very similar dynamic developing in the European Union as well. A number of uh, smaller and peripheral EU countries have exploited the fact that they are members of the EU to offer services to foreigners that uh, the central authorities absolutely hate. Uh, Malta sells passports to wealthy foreigners despite the strong opposition of the central authorities in Brussels as well as the opposition of many other EU governments portugal has done very well selling visas uh, malta and cyprus sell financial services to anyone who wants them same used to be true of the baltic states though they've become they've cracked down a little bit so you know essentially you, you end up with a situation whereby small members of federations exploit their role in, in that federation their access to this, the central economy to sell services that the central government would prefer they wouldn't do, but there's not much the central government can do about it. And it seems to be just a part of the whole dynamic.
0: It's fascinating you say not much they can do about it. So let's just unpack that a bit, because I presume it's different in each place. You know, the relationship between Washington and South Dakota will be different from Brussels to Malta and London to the British Virgin Islands. But if I understood you correctly, you said in the case of the British Virgin Islands, for example... London could impose direct rule.
1: Is that right? Yes, London could impose direct rule. But I mean, this is it's like a sort of classic bit of the British economy, whereby no one would conceivably have designed it this way. But we have entered into a sort of strange state of equilibrium based on the fact that some things are possible, but no one really does it. As soon as people start actually doing these things, then the whole process falls apart. So, yes, technically, Britain could do something about what happens in the BVI, same as they, and they have done. I mean, so the Turks and Caicos Islands, which had a corruption scandal, I remember rightly, about 20 years ago, uh, Britain did impose direct rule of the Turks and Caicos, not because it was a tax haven, just because it had got horrendously corrupt. I mean, though it is a a little bit of a tax haven as well. You know, but, but, you know, places like Anguilla, uh, another smaller British territory in the Caribbean, has been a, you know, a really appalling enabler of quite a lot of financial crime over the years. And that's just more or less been tolerated. Um, I should say the same doesn't really apply uh, or it's not really clear if it applies to the uh, the, the tax havens that are closer to home, um, the, the Isle of Man, Jersey, Guernsey and the other Channel Islands. Um, they aren't part of the United Kingdom. They are um, ruled by um, the monarch, um, King Charles, uh, in a personal capacity um, as, as Duke of Normandy in the case of Jersey and Guernsey and as the Lord of Man in the case of the Isle of Man. Yeah, they are, you know, A long time ago, the the kings or queens of England also ruled a very large part of France, um, but they gradually lost all of that. And the only bit they ended that they kept were the Channel Islands. So those ones, that's slightly different. The constitutional relationship is different. And though it is apparently technically possible for the king to tell these countries what to do um, as the lord, that never really happens. So it isn't those places are slightly different. They don't really fit the bill. Just they're much much older phenomenon. They go back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. So
0: yeah, what I'm trying to get at with this is that I can see it's different in each place and it's a very complicated issue to and it's yeah, so it's very hard to draw general points, but I'm just wondering if you take let's say human rights, you know, western governments in the post-war period have uh, created animosities in 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 developing world countries by pressing this human rights agenda you know they've taken it seriously they've paid a bit of a price for doing so not much but nonetheless there have been sanctions and stuff restricting trade uh, which has affected uh, the UK or the US as much as uh, the country being sanctioned so uh, you know it has had an impact on the US and the UK as well as the country being sanctioned so am i right in thinking that money laundering is not taken as seriously not because of the sensitivities of local politicians, but because there's something in it for London and Washington and Brussels and Abu Dhabi.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I think that a sizable, I mean, not a, by any means a majority of professional enablers, accountants and lawyers and so on, but still a sizable number of them in major financial centres uh, Dubai, obviously, but also London, New York, and so on, do very well out of moving the property belonging to kleptocrats or financial criminals. Um, you know, that is self-evidently true. Um, we can, we you know, the, the, the stories of, you know, members of the House of Lords working for Russian kleptocrats or or, you know, members of the, you know, very high up circles in the United States, up to and including President Trump's Son in law selling visas to wealthy Chinese people, you know, it, it is clear that they are doing well out of money that comes from questionable countries. Absolutely. However, I, I go back to the point I made about the dirty money and the naughty money flowing together. If the problem with money laundering was only one of kleptocrats, if this was only Mr. Putin and the like, moving money around. We could solve that problem tomorrow without anyone really noticing. It would be a net benefit to the world, understood even by the dimmest enabler in the City of London. There isn't that much money owned by kleptocrats. They aren't that wealthy. If you look at the cumulative wealth of Russian oligarchs, I wouldn't be surprised if Elon Musk is richer than all of them added together. Certainly wouldn't be far off the difficulty as i said is that you cannot inconvenience oligarchs without also inconveniencing the owners of legitimate wealth but people who do not want that wealth to be scrutinized whether that is a big silicon valley company or uh just you know uh, a, a wealthy you know owner of a of a business empire or or whatever and so the primary um Customers are always and have always been Belgian dentists rather than fallen South American dictators.
0: I get that, but I mean, surely governments have an interest in closing down Belgian dentists, don't they? I mean, they want the tax revenues. So why would, yeah, you know, the British government, the American government, or so on, whoever it is, looking at this sort of naughty money, say, well, we want a slice of that. I mean, we all got our spending plans and so on. We want to balance our budgets as best we can. Uh, we'll just close this whole thing down, not only get rid of the
1: kleptocrats but also raise some tax. The key word here is not so much the dentist word as the Belgian word, because if you're Switzerland and all the dentists in Belgium are putting their money in the boot of their car, driving to Switzerland and putting it in, the, in you know, a bank in Geneva, then yes, Belgium is losing out, but Switzerland isn't. Switzerland's doing very well out of it. Thank you very much. Um, the same is true of the British Virgin Islands if you know the president of angola is looting the country and stashing the money via the british virgin islands in london then angola is suffering terribly but the bvi in london are doing just fine out of it so you end up with a kind of tragedy of the commons situation whereby yes humanity as a whole would benefit enormously from the shutting down of offshore it would it would increase tax revenues for humanity as a whole but the more the world acts together the more profitable it becomes for one country not to act together. And this is the role that, say, Switzerland or London have been playing for years. And we see an absolutely fascinating example of this developing at the moment, or which has been developing over the last decade. And that is, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, the world had got together and bullied Switzerland into no longer being Uh, as opaque in its ownership of bank accounts as it used to be, that is a process that was largely led, as it tends to be, by the United States. Um, The United States outraged in the aftermath of the financial crisis that so many Americans were being allowed to keep their money tax-free and scrutiny-free in Swiss bank accounts and uh, really took on Credit Suisse and UBS, uh, the two big Swiss banks, particularly hard, fined them very fiercely. And as a result, uh, Western countries, well, and, and now pretty much all countries, agreed to something called the common reporting standards and that all countries would alert each other to property, to wealth owned in their banks by tax residents in other countries. So uh, if you are British and you have wealth in a bank in Australia, the Australian government will alert the British government to the fact it's there to prevent you using Australia as a tax haven to shield your wealth from uh, from the British government, and that's great. And this is exactly what you're talking about as something that all of humanity should do for the benefit of everyone. However, America has a different system. America has um a its own what's called FATCA, its own system which they created before the Common Reporting Standard. And having created their own system, which became the inspiration for the world system, America didn't feel the need to join the other one, which means that America receives information from the rest of the world, but doesn't provide any back again. It's not a reciprocal arrangement. It's strictly one way for the United States. So if you are a wealthy Chinese tycoon, and you had previously been keeping your money in Switzerland, where are you going to put it to make sure that there's no information about it filters its way back to the Chinese authorities? Well, sounds perverse to say it, but the best place to put it is now the United States. And this explains the astonishing boom. I've mentioned South Dakota a number of times. This explains the astonishing boom in the total amount of wealth being kept in South Dakota, which increases sort of 15, 10, uh, 10, 15, 20% a year every year is that very large numbers of uh, wealthy foreigners who would once have banked via a traditional tax haven, are now putting their money in the new wealth havens in the United States. So South Dakota, Nevada, Wyoming, Alaska, Delaware, places like that are really improbable places, to be honest, but places that have created these incredibly uh, opaque structures for hiding wealth within, where wealth can be protected even from the US Treasury Department. And so now we've reached a new kind of equilibrium, whereby it's not Switzerland that's benefiting from Belgian dentists. So they're probably not Belgian anymore, but Chinese dentists, and they're probably not dentists anymore. But you know what I mean? It's not not Switzerland benefiting from it. It's now individual states in the United States. And who's going to bully them into compliance? Because without America standing up to them, there is no one who can stand up to them. So the new equilibrium we're in is in fact, probably even worse than the old one, which is a depressing thought.
0: We've reached that stage of the interview where we do actually get round to discussing the future. And uh, just wondering, does that mean, as we look ahead, London will get a decreasing slice of this naughty, evil money pie, and that the United States will become uh, the place where all this happens?
1: Not really. What, uh, the, the one that's really lost out in relation to the United States is Switzerland. London was always a, a little bit different it wasn't really so much of a secrecy jurisdiction and more of a kind of everything jurisdiction what london offers that other centers for you know kleptocratic wealth doesn't offer is just the sheer breadth of services that aren't available anywhere else you know switzerland was very good for hiding wealth but it wasn't very good for investing wealth or 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 as a place to have fun you know as a as a place to live and enjoy yourself it was you know a little bit on the boring side london offers you know wealth management it offers very strong protection uh, against journalistic inquiry because of strong defamation laws it's a very good place for suing your enemies it has utterly feeble law enforcement agencies so no one's actually going to check up on where your money comes from it's got great schools for educating your kids great universities very very biddable politicians it's in a good uh, good uh, time zone speaks a language uh, the international language that everyone speaks so i don't think London's role as the center for kleptocratic wealth is likely to be dethroned anytime soon. The only real rival to London, and the only rival that London's had for for decades is is New York. But New York has one great downside compared to London, which is the FBI. It does have potent, ambitious law enforcement agency a number of them actually but the fbi in particular who will look into the origin of wealth and will bring cases and and have a track record of of putting people in jail uh for you know moving money through the united states uh, financial system in a way that just doesn't happen in the uk so you know i think as long as the fbi remains um potent and ambitious uh london's position as the great kleptocratic center of the world is safe
0: and you made the point, as final question, really, you made the point at the beginning of this that you know, you've been looking into this and no one's really interested, you know, that the politicians don't want to know about it and that it's hard for you to get people to pay attention to the issue. Is is that simply because London does get financial benefits out of providing all these services? I mean, it, 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 it seems odd that more MPs wouldn't uh, and more gov- yeah people in government wouldn't have uh, an interest in in this. How do you explain it?
1: Well, I mean, you, before we start turn the microphone on, as it were, before we started recording, you did give me a license to be nerdy. And I have been extraordinarily nerdy today. I can, I can talk about this in a, in a more accessible way to, uh, you know, an audience that, that you know, isn't, doesn't really want to hear endlessly about the, the opacity of trust structures in, North, in South Dakota. But I can't be that accessible about it. We're still talking about accountancy this is inherently boring the consequences are incredible and could barely be more important but the actual details are dull and they are difficult to explain in an exciting way so partly this is complicated people who are busy and politicians are busy it's difficult to explain to them in 30 seconds why they should care about tax havens so that's part of the issue part of the issue is the fact that the the victims of tax havens of, of kleptocracy and there are hundreds of millions of victims who suffer terribly from what's happening they are not in the UK not in the US they're not in countries uh, where which can make a difference and therefore they don't have a vote you know they're not writing they're not constituents writing letters to MPs to to complain about what's happening on the contrary the people who benefit are in these jurisdictions and they benefit well. So they will be writing to MPs saying, don't do anything about this. You know, I've spoken to people in charge of money laundering policy in the Treasury here in the UK who said that they never had a minister ask them why it was important to maintain rules against money laundering. But they regularly had ministers relaying complaints from wealthy individuals or financial institutions saying, why do the rules have to be so strict? You know, that's very much where we're at. We're in a situation where... You know, politicians are much more concerned about what happens inside their own country rather than being concerned about the impact of the world as a whole. And that, you know, that is a real problem. But there are MPs in the UK who do care about this. Um, you know, I talk to some of them quite often. It's, there's not that many of them, but they understand and they try very hard to bring this to the centre of political attention. But there is always a bigger crisis going on you know even when there is a crisis directly connected to kleptocracy such as what's currently happening in Ukraine which is directly related to the nature of the Russian regime and the and the kleptocratic networks that Putin has been able to use to accumulate vast wealth for himself and his friends even then there are aspects of it that are more urgent than cracking down on the money side of things whether that's supplying weapons or or helping refugees so it is incredibly hard to find time in the calendar and this I think is unlikely to change, despite the fact that the impact of financial crime is not just something that afflicts Nigerians or Russians or Ukrainians. Fraud, common or garden fraud, is now the most common form of crime in the UK. The, The academics estimate its cost to the British economy at 55% billion pounds a year, which is a colossal sum of money. It's essentially a tax imposed by criminals on the British economy of 55 billion pounds a year. That's a lot of money. And I find it extraordinary, to be honest, that that does not have greater political salience. And um, I will keep wanging on about this to try and make sure that somehow it gains it.
0: Well, it's, it's absolutely wonderful to have someone on, on, on the future of has got such command of their subject. It's, uh, and you, know, you, you, you explain it with such ease. So thank you very much indeed, Oliver Bueller.
1: Thanks very much for having me on and letting me be really nerdy.